Hey, it is uh, great to see you here at the Medina East Campus of Grace. We are in week six of a series that we've been journeying through now that we've been calling Highlight God Through You. And uh, like Tommy mentioned just a moment ago, if you're a guest with us here, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. Welcome to Grace. We're so glad you're here. Uh, My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Grace. And so if we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love to get a chance to do that. So please catch me afterwards uh, in the service if you can. I'd love to hear how you got connected here at Grace. Uh, But if it is your first week, like I said, we are in the sixth week of this series that we've been journeying through. Just to kind of catch you up to speed with what we've been doing, uh, this entire series has really been us processing through and kind of basing the, the whole sort of conversation out of this incredible book in the New Testament of our Bibles, and that is the book of 1 Peter. And uh, what we've been saying over the past five weeks is we said that you can actually summarize uh, the whole message of the book of 1 Peter and really the whole message of this series in one very, very simple illustration. And so here's the illustration that we've been using, as silly as it might sound, is we've been saying that really 1 Peter can be summarized uh, with this, a highlighter. And we said that really the message of 1 Peter is that he's going to say that those who follow Jesus, which by the way, I know is not maybe everyone in this room. Uh, Some of you might be here and you're still maybe in investigating Jesus and investigating in Christianity. And if that's the case, we're so glad to have you as well. But we've been saying that the message of 1 Peter is that Christians should really live in a lot of ways like a highlighter. We said highlighters are actually pretty interesting if you think about it. Uh, There's almost nothing quite like them uh, because they are created with the intention of really drawing your attention to something else. And so you kind of say it this way, uh, that highlighters are created to glorify something, right? So when when you highlight something, Uh, The reason you do that is not simply to draw attention to the highlighter, but it's to draw your attention through the highlight so that you can see something that is behind it. And so in the same way, we said that for those of us who follow Jesus, Peter's going to say that we should live like highlighters in the world that we're in, that we should stand out, that we should look different than the world that we live in, but not in such a way that draws attention to ourselves, but in a way that draws attention through ourselves, so that people can see God within us. And so Christians are to live in such a way that we can highlight and glorify God, that when people look at us, they can see the love of God, they can see the character of God, uh, they can see the priorities of God, the hope of God, that those things can be made uh, seen and can be made evident in and through our lives. And so uh, what we've been doing then is each week, practically speaking, I'm saying, how's that, what does it look like to live like a highlighter? And so Peter's been helping us with this. So for the past four weeks, here's the topics that we've covered that we've seen in the book of 1 Peter. And what Peter said is that one of the ways that Christians live like highlighters is that we highlight God through our suffering. And so we said, man, this is a major theme in the book of Peter. Peter's going to say that for the Christian, suffering is an incredible opportunity to glorify God. And so the next week, we talked about highlighting God through our good. And we said, Peter's going to say that we should be known for our good lives, for our good deeds, and for our good words. The week after that, we talked about highlighting God through our community, that this is something that we do together for those of us who follow Christ. Then last week, we talked about highlighting God through our submission. And so I just want to encourage you, by the way, if you missed any of those previous talks, you can always rewind. You can listen to those on our podcast, on our app, on our website. All of those platforms are for free. But today, as we continue to journey through the book of 1 Peter, uh, we're going to see Peter bring up another way that Christians can highlight God. And the way that we're going to look at today is this. Today we're going to talk about, Peter's going to talk about highlighting God through our marriage, through our marriage. So this morning, we are going to talk a little bit about marriage, because Peter's going to talk about marriage. And we're going to talk about how do we live in such a way where we highlight God through our 
marriage. Now, of course, before we jump into this, I think it's probably necessary for me to say that I'm fully aware that not everyone in this room today is married. And so maybe you're a single person or you're a divorced person or you're a widow. And when you see that today we're going to be talking about marriage, uh, you might be tempted to tune me out. And I just want to encourage you before we jump into today's, today's message to, uh, to not do that. And the reason I want to encourage you not to tune me out is really for a couple reasons. So first off, if you're a single person, my guess is that for some of you, some of you who are single, in fact, maybe for many of you who are single, it is your desire to at some point maybe be married or be remarried. And if that's the case, I think it's really important for you to pay attention. And the reason is because the best time, I think, to really get a vision for what God intends in marriage is before you're married. And so if you, if you uh, are a person who's single and is desiring to get married, I think you actually have an advantage on married people because you have an opportunity to build, whereas many married people are trying to rebuild. And so I think it's important to tune in. Now, there's also some of you who are in the room who are single, and maybe you're completely content being single. You have no desire to be married or to be remarried or whatever that is. And I just want to say, if that's the case, by the way, that's actually pretty awesome. Uh, the Bible's going to say that uh, being in the position where you're single is, it, is not at all a disadvantage. The Bible's actually going to say that there are many advantages to being a single person that God has actually gifted some people to be single, and that is a gift to the church, and that is a gift to the world. And so you might be asking, well, if I'm that person, why should I pay attention to this topic? And here's what I wanna say to that. This might sound really weird to you, but my hope is that through today's talk that you can see this in this passage. And that's that, married, that marriage, the Bible's gonna tell us, marriage is actually not just for married people. As strange as that might sound, the Bible's gonna tell us that the same way that singleness is a gift that's given to some for the church and for the world, the Bible's gonna say that marriage is a gift that was intended to be given to the church and to the world. It's not just for married people. That God wants to accomplish something through marriage that actually will impact the entire world. And so my hope is that maybe you can see that with us today. So having said all of that, why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles and look at the passage that we're going to read, and it is in 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay, so go ahead and get your Bibles out, and if you would join me, 1 Peter 3 is where we're going to go. That's found on the page uh, 851 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. If you need to use those, feel free to do that. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you. Okay, we'd love for you to have a Bible. Now, as we're turning to 1 Peter 3, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is a challenging passage that we're about to read, right? So the passage that we're about to jump into is challenging on a lot of different levels. First off, um, I think what we're going to see is this passage has a lot of landmines in it. And when I say landmines, what I mean is Peter's going to use some words uh, that in our culture are very explosive, very explosive, and uh, especially as it relates to addressing wives. I think you're going to see that. And it's also challenging because once you actually disarm those landmines, which I'm kind of hoping to do today, when you finally get to the true message of First Peter, it's kind of like a little bit of a punch in the gut. And so it's challenging on a couple different levels as we sort of go through this. So hopefully if I do my job right, if I do my job right today, if I get beat up in the parking lot afterwards, uh, it won't just be by wives, but it'll be a combination of husbands and wives both beating me up, all right? So that actually could be a good marriage activity for you, beat up your pastor kind of thing. So, but, uh, but no, all kidding aside, um, if I do my job right today, 
My hope is that we can take a difficult passage and that you can see the heart of God in it. That's what I'm hoping for. And so as I try my best to do my job, I actually want to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I want to ask you to try to do your best to do your part as well. And here's your part, okay? Your part is that I want to ask you to try your best to actually hear what the heart of this passage is. I know sometimes when we encounter a difficult passage, it's easy for us to shut off our ears and to harden our hearts and to kind of push these things away. And I wanna encourage you not to do that because I believe that what God says here is actually really, really, really wise and I think it's really powerful. So we're gonna do that together. So before we jump in and read this passage, why don't we just pray together and then we'll have a chance to, uh, to go ahead and get into it. Well, Jesus, we just wanna come before you this morning And I know that there's many of us who are in this room who believe that what we're dealing with is actually uh, your words that are preserved for us. And so because of that, we want to come um, with an expectancy that you will teach us and that we'll be able to hear what your heart is. So would you open our minds, open our hearts, and open our ears to what you might have to say through your word? And God, I do just also want to pray for myself. And I want to ask you that you would help me to say things that are true. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd make me, help me to be useful to the people who are in this room. We just want to ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So here we go. We're going to read the whole passage, and then we'll go through and we'll explain it. So it starts off in this way. He says, wives, 1 Peter chapter 3, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves. There's the first kind of landmine. We referred to this a little bit last week. But that certainly is not the most popular concept in our culture. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. That if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, okay, by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold or jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. All right. Which is of great worth in God's sight. All right. It goes on. For this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. (sighs) All right. You are her daughters if you do what's right and do not give way to fear. Verse 7. Husbands. All right. Thank God. Finally, we're on to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, there you go. That is our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. You can see why we prayed uh, before we jumped into this here today. Because I think when we read a passage like this, like I said, man, this is a challenging passage. And I think at first read, at first read, we can tend to think that what it's telling us is basically this. Wives, be submissive, obedient, and quiet because you're weak and men are better. And don't wear nice stuff. And call your husband Lord. And all God's people said, yikes, right? Yikes. This can be a really challenging passage for a lot of different reasons. Dropping this passage into our culture is like dropping Mentos into Diet Coke. It just has an explosive effect on many things. I think that when we read a passage like this, it causes images to come to our mind. We think of stuff like this. Uh, Pictures like this might come to our mind. I can't even imagine what the story behind this picture is. I don't even know. But I think uh, for sure, 
There's definitely a lot of abuse that is around this passage. This passage, I think, uh, I think uh, that uh, we can kind of see why. Uh, this passage has been used as an example sometimes of how the Bible is misogynistic. Uh, it's been used as an example of how the Bible endorses and suppresses women's rights. And understandably so, I think, when you read it. However, like I said, I think when you dig into this, this passage is really a great example of uh, why context really, really, really matters. You know, anytime you read the Bible, and you probably hear us say this a lot here at the Medina campus, anytime you read the Bible, you always want to read it in context. Because if you misunderstand the context, it can lead to great misunderstanding and it can lead to abuse. So just to kind of give you an example of the importance of understanding something in its context, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you overheard me say this statement right here. Let's say you overheard me say, I like to paint rocks with animals and flowery designs on them with my BFF in my basement. Right, let's imagine that you overheard me say that. Which, by the way, just for the record, this is actually true about me. I do like to paint uh, rocks in the basement with flowers and animals on it with my BFF. Now, you're getting some weird looks. And um, it's because it lacks context, right? It lacks context. So if you were to find out that the context of this statement was that the BFF I'm referring to was Pastor Seth. That would be creepy and concerning, and you probably would be like, we gotta find another church, and, you'd be, and I wouldn't blame you for that, right? But if you found out, which this is true, by the way, that the BFF I'm referring to is my three-year-old daughter. I have a three-year-old little daughter. She likes to paint rocks, and I enjoy doing that with her, too, in the basement. You're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. That's a nice, that's, that's a cute thing to do. That's fine, right? It's all about context. It's all about context. And what I want you to understand is that this passage is oftentimes ripped out of its context. Notice something that it says, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, wives, now this is so key, in the same way, in the same way. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a clear indication that we're picking this whole thing up mid-thought. Right? Like if you and I were in the cafe and I just came up to you and I was like, you know, in the same way, and I just started talking, you'd be like, in the same way as what? And say, you, it, clearly you would know that there was something else that must have come before this. So what came before this? When he says wives in the same way, what is he actually drawing our attention to? Well, what he's doing is he's referring back to something that he just said, like literally just said just a couple of verses before this. And I'll show you what he just said. And this is actually in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, to this you were called. Now, by the way, he's talking about suffering for doing good. That's what he's talking about. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus Christ's self-sacrificial love for our benefit and for our liberation. That's what he's talking about. He goes on, he says, he himself bore our sins, Jesus took on our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's what he says. So what's the context? Here's the context. He is referring to the incredible, selfless, self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. He's saying, think about Jesus' love for you. And think about the way that Jesus uh, took on our sin and that he was willing to uh, sacrifice of himself, lay down his own rights so that we might go free and we might be saved. That's what he's referring to. And he says, Jesus Christ left an example for you. 
that you are too, that those of us who follow Jesus are to love in the same way. So in other words, I think if you could kind of summarize it, I think that basically what Peter's saying is, listen, Jesus loved us better than we deserved. And so in the same way that Jesus has loved us better than we deserved, we should love other people better than they deserve. And so what's that gonna look like? Well, now he's gonna say, well, for wives, that's gonna look a certain way. Now, by the way, I think it's important that I mention this too, that he doesn't just tell wives to love their husbands in the same way that Christ has loved them. He also tells husbands in the same way in verse seven. So do you notice this? This is so important to understanding Christian marriage. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're trying to understand what marriage is all about, this is actually very helpful because the Bible is saying that in Christian marriage, that a husband and wife take their cues on how they love each other, not from each other. They don't respond to each other's loves. They don't take their cue from the culture that tells them how they should love their spouse. Christians take their cue from Jesus Christ. A husband looks at Christ's love that he has his self-sacrificing love, and he then applies that to his wife, and a wife looks at Jesus Christ and Jesus' self-sacrificing love, and she then applies that to her husband, and it's gonna look different in two different ways. I think what Peter is saying is, listen, we can love others in the same way that Jesus Christ loved us, and in the same way, we can watch their hearts melt and their lives changed. Because for those of us who love Jesus, we've seen his love for us and it has melted our hearts and has changed our lives. And so now in the same way, we apply that love. So what does that look like? Well, he's gonna say it's actually gonna look different for husbands and wives. So for wives, what does it look like to love in the same way? Well, he's gonna say this. He's gonna say wives should submit themselves to their own husbands. Now, again, we talked about this last week, the idea of submission. If you missed that, you might wanna go back and listen to that. But when he tells wives to submit to their husbands, this is actually congruent with what the rest of the Bible teaches. And so we see this in other passages, like in Ephesians chapter five, we see this in the book of Colossians, that the Bible's gonna say that wives are to play a very special role in their marriage. And that role is one in which they are to display the love of Christ through, through Christ-like submission to their husband. So in the same way that Jesus Christ submitted himself to his father, in the same way that the church submits herself to Christ, the Bible says that wives are to play that role and they're to love their husbands in this way. He goes on, he says this, he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, he says, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, again, I think when we read that, when the Bible says uh, without words, and it says a gentle and quiet spirit, and it says that your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, but it should be that of your inner self, that that should be the beauty that you seek, this can sound degrading, I think, because it can sound like what the Bible is saying is that women should just be quiet. But I think um, that to understand the heart of what Peter's getting at here, you have to understand a little bit of the historical context. So let me explain that a little bit. So uh, there is a, a professor, a biblical scholar by the name of Karen Jobes. Uh, she's actually a contributor to the ex, uh, Baker exegetical commentary series. I thought she pointed this out and said it very well, but she uh, was talking about in Greco-Roman society. So in the first century, in the time that uh, Peter was writing, 
This is actually a kind of a snapshot of what the culture would have been like in this time. Uh, it was expected in this time that a wife would have no friends of her own, and a wife was to worship the gods of her husband. So some of you might even know this. Back in first century Greco-Roman society, it was a very patriarchal culture. It was one in which women, uh, there was no women's rights. Women were actually considered uh, almost like property. Uh, they were very mistreated back in this time. And so when a woman took on a husband, when a wife would take on a husband in this time, it was the cultural expectation, not the religious expectation. It was the cultural expectation that a wife would have no friends of her own except for the friends of her husband and that she would worship the God, whatever God her husband worshiped. That was actually the expectation of Greco-Roman society back in this time. Well, you can imagine this led to serious problems for women who began to follow Jesus. And so she goes on, she points out number two, worshiping Jesus would have been perceived as rebellion against an unbelieving husband and would have caused him embarrassment, criticism, and would seriously damage his social standing. In fact, uh, back in this time, if you had a wife who began worshiping Jesus, not only was she not worshiping the God of her husband, which would have been a really big deal, but she also would have went to these Christian meetings with these other people who weren't friends of her husband and with these other men who were not her husband. And that would have been viewed as rebellion. That would have been viewed as disrespectful. That would have actually been viewed in such a way that it would have damaged his social standing. She actually goes on to talk about how this could actually disqualify him for certain honors and for certain offices. There's certain jobs he couldn't have if this was the circumstance. And then number three, she says that because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religious forces, disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family, but also to society. So when a wife began to worship Jesus when her husband didn't, which, by the way, was the context of this passage, it would have been seen not only as rebellion against her husband, but it also would have been considered a menace to society because it would have been considered something that would have torn apart the social fabric of the culture back in this time. And so I think when you understand this setting, it helps you understand that when Peter says, wives, try to win your husbands without words. Wives, uh, do this in such a way where it's gentle and quiet, with a gentle and quiet spirit. I think you can see the heart. The heart is this, that a wife, for a wife in this time, this is what it would have looked like for her to have been considerate and to have been thoughtful about her husband. She, this, to, not, to not want to unnecessarily destroy his reputation, to think about what he must be going through. This is what selfless love would look like for a wife back in the side. What Peter's saying here is, is crazy. Peter is saying, listen, wives, if you begin worshiping Jesus and your husband doesn't worship Jesus, don't look to get out of that marriage. He's gonna say, but instead, look to win him over. Look to win him over to Christ. And how do you do that? It's not by being pushy. It's not by demanding your rights. It's not by nagging him consistently about how he needs to come to church with you or whatever. He's gonna say, no, it is through, listen, being respectful and loving, submitting where, you're can, where you can with a gentle and a quiet spirit. He's saying, this is what self-sacrificial love looks like. And by the way, I think it's probably worth mentioning here that you know sometimes we talk about uh, the Bible says that women should be submissive and they sh or wives should be submissive and they should have a gentle and quiet spirit. And we view that as degrading. But I want you to notice that the Bible actually says that this is what all Christians are to be like. That in every area, that in different areas of life, Christians are to be submissive with a gentle and quiet spirit. 
I'll show you uh, another passage just to refer to what I'm talking about. Here in 1 Timothy 2, the apostle Paul says, I urge that intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. So we talked about this last week. All Christians are to be submissive to somebody. And he's gonna say that as we practice this submission, that we should do this with a, by living a peaceful and quiet life with all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. What the Bible's going to say is that submission wherever we can with gentleness and respect has the ability to soften people's hearts and could create an opportunity for them to know Jesus. That's what the Bible's gonna say. And then he's gonna go on and he's gonna say this. He's gonna say, this is the way that holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah. Now, when the Bible talks about Sarah and Abraham here, it's actually referring to something in the Old Testament, very famous Bible characters back in the book of Genesis. He says, um, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him Lord. Now that, yeah, yeah that's real challenging for us because we're like, I, don't, I ain't calling nobody Lord. I don't care what you say. And um, this is actually really easy to understand as well when you understand the context. Back in the book of Genesis, it would have been a very common sign of respect to call someone your Lord. There's several examples of this in multiple places in the book of Genesis. He says, you are her daughter if you do what's right and you do not give way to fear. So my hope is when you see what Peter says here and you understand a little bit of the context that you can see the heart. Now, what is the heart? Here's the heart. For a wife, this is about responding to Jesus' love, self-sacrificing love, and it's taking that love and it's applying it in your marriage. And I think what Peter is saying is he's saying, listen, wives, if you really wanna be a highlighter, if you really wanna stand out, if you really wanna show your husband what the love of Jesus looks like and allow the love of Jesus to shine through you, he's gonna say that the way that you do that is by living according to faith and not by fear, and it's trusting God and it's displaying a self-sacrificing love where you are considerate and you are respectful to him and to his needs and that you're respectful to who he is as a person and you're thinking about him, not demanding your rights, but al allowing yourself to put them down for the sake of him because that's what Jesus has done for us and you might win your husband as a result of that. That's what the Bible's gonna say. So he's gonna talk about wives. Now we're gonna talk a little bit more about that here in a second, but I, we spent a lot of time on wives. And so now I think it's good for us to go ahead and turn here a little bit and talk about husbands. So now he's gonna talk about husbands. So he says, husbands. So for those of us who are husbands in the room, directly applicable, husbands in the same way. So we talked about this already. What does it mean when he says in the same way? Remember, he's talking about Jesus's love. And so, again, Jesus loved better than we deserved. So in the same way, we should love others better than they deserve. So how's that gonna look for husbands? He's gonna say, husbands, you are now to apply this to your relationship with your wife. And the way that looks is that you need to, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. It's a weaker partner. All right, let me explain this a little bit here. Um, so some of you have different translations and your Bible might say weaker vessel. That's what it might say. That's actually, I believe, a better translation of what it says in the Greek. So the word vessel is a word that is applied in other places in the Bible to speak about our physical bodies. It's to speak about our physical bodies. So what is he talking about when he says that wives are the weaker vessel? Well, let me say this. It's not a value statement. 
He's not saying that men are superior to women. He's not saying that men are intellectually superior to women because we're not. He's not saying it's because we're emotionally superior. All he's saying, I believe, is he's just pointing out the basic, uh, the basic observation that I think, mo- and I, you know, this honestly, I don't think this has been controversial to say except for just recently in history. I think he's pointing out the basic truth that all of us know, and that is that there is a genetic difference between men and women physically. And it's just, it's just true. That, that, that typically speaking, men tend to be stronger than women. Typically, that tends to be the case. Now, I know there's always exceptions to that case. Guys, there's MMA fighters who are women that could just take all of us down right now if they wanted to. Like, that's just true. But generally speaking, men tend to be, in our genetic makeup, we tend to be stronger than women. That's just, that's just true. That's why I believe there is an NBA and there is a WNBA. I think that's why there is an MMA for men and there is an MMA for women. We don't fight in the same arenas. Why? Because we realize that that would be wrong to do so. There's something different in us genetically. I, uh, I like the way I heard one person put it one time. They said, you know, if you think about a, a vessel, uh, a, a good example would be like, here, here's a vessel, like a, a vase, you think about a vase, it is a, it is a beautiful vessel. It is created uh, for a purpose and is good. It's valuable, it's beautiful, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. You think about another vessel, so think about like this plastic beer mug, for example. It's also, it's also good, right? It's made for a purpose and it's useful and it has a, a design to it. And both of these things are good, they're both good. Uh, both of these things are, are created for different reasons, but you treat them different. You treat them different. You're not going to treat a vase the same way you're going to treat a plastic uh, beer mug. You, you can put one of these in a dishwasher. The other one you're not going to put in the dishwasher, right? And one of, these, uh, one of them is clearly more beautiful, but is also clearly uh, more, is like the weaker of the two vessels, physically speaking. One, you put beautiful things in, like flowers. The other one, you would, never put, you would never put flowers in a plastic beer mug, unless you're like a single dude. Then maybe you would do that. And they're probably plastic flowers if you did anyway, right? And all I'm saying is the Bible's gonna say that, yeah, there's, dif- there's a difference. There's a difference between the makeup of a man and the makeup of a woman. And the Bible's gonna say that this is something that husbands should be considerate of. Husbands should be considerate of this difference, Listen, I don't know why this is the case, but we live in a culture today where we disparage any difference between the genders. We live in a society where we say, anything that you can do, I can do the same, or I can do better. That's the society we live in. But the Bible doesn't only uh, reveal that there are differences between men and women, but the Bible celebrates those things. The Bible says that the difference between men and women in our genders is not an issue of competition or contention. It's actually an issue of celebration. And it's an issue of completism. That it's complementary in the way it's designed. It's something that we should look at and say how wonderful it is that God has made us different, how beautiful it is that he's made us different. And the Bible's gonna say that husbands should be considerate of the differences when they live with their wives and they should treat those with respect. See, so what the Bible's gonna say is that husbands, that just like wives display the love of Christ in one way in the marriage, we are to display the love of Christ another way. And how is that? Well, the Bible's gonna say in Ephesians chapter five that husbands are to take on the role of servant leader, servant leadership. And I know sometimes husbands misunderstand this. Sometimes husbands think that because God has called us to be leaders in the marriage, that that means that we're the first to be served. And that's so wrong. 
Because the Bible's gonna say that servant leadership, it looks like that of Jesus Christ, and it means that we're the first to serve. I like the way I heard one commentator put it. He said it this way. He said, the leader is the one who picks up the heavier part of the load first and is the last one to put it down. That's what servant leadership looks like. We pick up the heavier end of the load first and then we're the last ones to put it down. Is that not what Jesus Christ has done for us? He has picked up the heavier end of the load of our sin and he was the last to put it down for our sake that we might go free. And so the Bible says that husbands, we should be considerate that we should be respectful. And then look at this. It says, and you should treat them as heirs with you in the precious uh, in the gracious gift of life. Now, I wish I had more time to get into this, but when he says this right here, I just want you to know this would have been so provocative and so scandalous in the time and culture in which Peter was writing into. I mentioned that back in this time, women were considered second-class citizens. Men were far superior to women back in this society. That's the way it was viewed. And so for Peter to come in here and say that husbands should treat their wives as co-heirs with them in the gracious inheritance of the gift of life, that would have been him saying, husbands, you should treat your wives as equal dignity as you. And that would have been, that would have rocked the boat back in this time. Karen Jobes, she said it really well again. Here's what she said. Peter teaches that men whose authority runs roughshod over their women, even with society's full approval, will not be heard by God. She goes on, she says, the well-being of the Christian household depends on the man recognizing the female as a co-heir in Christ and living with her respectfully, even though he is the physically stronger, socially empowered male, which would have been true back in this time. She says this, I think this is such a valuable perspective. She says, how ironic is it that the words that first century slaves and wives would read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. I think that's really valuable what she said. She's saying, listen, these words that Peter is saying that we choke on in our culture, back in that time, this would have been so liberating and empowering. It would have been so progressive for women in this time. And so we can miss that sometimes. We can miss that. And then on top of all of that, look what Peter says next. Look what Peter says next to husband. He says, treat your wives in this way so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Wow. That's a pretty strong statement. I think that that is a sober warning, husbands, for any of us who would mistreat or be inconsiderate to our wives. You see what God is saying? He's saying, listen, if you, if you, would be, if you are unwilling to, to seek after being the servant leader like Christ is to the church in your marriage, you cannot expect that God is gonna listen to you. God ain't gonna listen to you. And why? And I think it's pretty obvious in this passage because... That's God's, that's God's daughter. And so, I mean, look, this is, this is a sober warning, I think, to those of us who are husbands. Before she was your wife, she is God's daughter. And if you think you can mistreat or be inconsiderate to God's daughter and expect that God is listening to you, you have another thing coming. So that's God, when you're, guys, when you're checking the score, that's God's daughter who's trying to talk to you. And when, when you speak in the tone that you do or you are aggressive in your, that is God's daughter that you're dealing with. When you look at another woman who's not your wife in a lustful way, you, you think God's gonna be like, I'm great, I'm good with that. There's no way, there's no way. In other words, think about this. This is a crazy thought. Do you ever think about it this way? For those of us who are husbands, God is your spiritual father-in-law. How about that? 
It makes me think of something like this here, you know. And, uh, I love that picture. I just love that. It's great. But, you know, I think any, any of us who have daughters, who are fathers of daughters, we understand this a little bit. You know, I know I definitely felt this when I, I have uh, four kids, and I have three boys, and I have one little princess, just one little girl. And I'm telling you, a different part of my heart was activated when that little girl was born. And she has two older brothers, and she has one younger brother, so she's fully surrounded, which is exactly how I want it to be. And I just, you know, I want you to imagine with me for a minute a scenario where, you know, she was a teenager or something, and some punk teenage kid came to my house, and he wanted to date my daughter. And he came up to me, and he was like, you know, Mr. Olivigny, or whatever. And he was like, you know, I want to take your daughter on a date. And I was like, all right, well, tell me about that, you know. And he's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't have a car, so I was wondering if maybe I could borrow your car. And, uh, you know, I don't have any money because I don't have a job, so I was wondering if maybe you could lend me some money so I could take your daughter on a date. And uh, I want to take out your car and get your daughter out, and I want to pick up all my buddies, and we're going to go joy ride around town. I want to make your daughter sit in the back, and all my friends are going to sit in the front of your car. And then at the end of the night, I want to try to pull over somewhere and find a place to make out with your daughter in the backseat of your car. So you think I can borrow your car? What do you think I'm going to say to this kid? I'm going to say, uh, no, you cannot borrow my car, but you can borrow my baseball bat with your face. <laughs> right? That's what you can borrow. And, uh, and I, think, I think if you get the, the heart of that a little bit, man, I, listen, however you take this passage, however you take it, I don't think you can take it in a bad way. I mean, look at the heart of it. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, wives, look at the love of Jesus. And then apply that to your husband. He's saying, husbands, look at the love of Jesus. And then apply that to your wives. It breaks my heart that we can look at this passage and think that it's repressing in any way. I think this is so liberating. It's a beautiful thing that God wants for us. I'll mention just one last thing here before we close up that I think is often missed about marriage. And it's actually found in the broader context of this book. You know, what Peter says about marriage here, about husbands and wives, is actually a sub-point to what he would have said back in chapter two. So let me just show you what he says in chapter two, verse 12. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans. Pagans are those who don't follow Jesus. Live such good lives among those who don't follow Jesus that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God in the day he visits us. And so again, you see the heart. What he's saying is Christians should live like highlighters. We should live such good lives among those who don't follow Jesus that through our lives that they might see the goodness of God and it might cause them to glorify God as a result of it. And now he's gonna go on and he's gonna say part of what it means to live a good life is wives, it looks like this. And husbands, it looks like this. And I think what this draws out is a really important point about marriage that's oftentimes missed. And it's this, is that marriage, Christian marriage, is really intended for a mission. I think a lot of times we miss this. The Bible's gonna tell us that if you're a follower of Jesus, your mission or your marriage is intended for a mission, that God wants to use your marriage to accomplish a mission. And what is that mission? Mission critical, the Bible is gonna say, is that marriage is intended to connect people to the love of Jesus. That's it, that's mission critical. This is actually exactly what the book of Ephesians is gonna say. Ephesians 5 is going to say that marriage is a profound mystery, but ultimately it's about Christ and the church. So Ephesians is going to say. Ephesians is going to say the point of marriage is to display a mission 
And what is the mission? It is to reveal the love of Jesus, of Christ and the church, to each other and to the world. You're to show the world something about the love of God. And your marriage is to be an example. It's to be a caricature of God's love so that the world can see what that looks like. And so what he's going to say is he's going to say, listen, wives, and some of you are in this, in this scenario right now, he's going to say, wives, if your husband is not a follower of Jesus, he's going to say, then right now, it is operation win your husband to Jesus. And how do you do that? He's going to say, by displaying to him what the love of Christ looks like. And what does that look like? He's going to say, it's going to be through your gentle submission, respectful, not pushy, not demanding your rights because Christ didn't do that. But by thinking and respecting and loving him, it's gonna soften his heart and it might cause him to know Jesus. And he's gonna say, husbands, if your wife doesn't know Jesus, it is now operation win your wife to Jesus. And how do you do that? He's gonna say not by arguing and not by coercion and not by forcefully demanding, but through being the servant leader, showing her what Christ-like love looks like. That's what's gonna win her heart. And if two people, if you're a husband and a wife and you both follow Jesus, he's gonna say it's now in your marriage operation win the world to Christ. And how are you gonna do that? It says by showing the world what the love of Jesus looks like. That's what it's gonna look like in those things. So let me just say, Christian singles, if you're a person who's not married in this room and you wanna be married and you're a follower of Christ, I wanna tell you something that I wish, I think, I think many of us wish someone would have told us before we got married. And it's this is that a lot of people get married based off of a lot of different foundations. And so for example, some people get married off of the foundation of common interest. And so some people believe that the, the, what you look for in a spouse is you're looking for somebody uh, who you're compatible with. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who's like you, who's complementary to your personality, who you share similarities in, who can be your friend. Uh, some people base their marriage off of, Some people base their ma- marriage off a of common attraction that basically the criteria for who you marry is, are they hot? And if they're hot, then why not get married, right? And some people get married based off of uh, this idea of common benefit, that if it's mutually beneficial and we both get something out of it and that we both can help each other achieve our dreams, then yeah, that's what a good marriage is built on. And I just wanna tell you, these are fine things. There's nothing wrong with these things per se, but they're terrible foundations to build your marriage off of. And I just tell you, I've talked to so many people who have uh, either gotten a divorce or who have sought divorce. And when you hear them talk about why, what you hear is that they've built their marriage on one of these things. And so I'll talk to someone and they'll say they're thinking about leaving. And I'm like, well, can you explain that to me? And they'll say, well, yeah, you know, my spouse and I, man, we just, we've really just drifted apart. And, you know, there was a time when we were, it felt like we were kind of like, it was, you know, we were were, were just kind of like good for each other, but we're different people now. I feel like I don't know her anymore. I feel like I don't know, we don't have anything in common. And what are they saying? What they're saying is that the foundation of their marriage that they're seeking after together is common interest. People will say, well, you know, I just, we just, we just, we're, you know, we fell out of romance. There's no more romance anymore. Uh, We're not attracted to each other. I'm attracted to somebody else now. And so I'm gonna marry that person. And what are they saying? Well, they're saying they've built their marriage on a different foundation. Some people say, well, you know, I, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything out of the marriage. You know, I feel like I'm putting out more than I'm getting out. I'm putting in more than I'm getting out of this marriage. And I just feel like, you know, I give, 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 and I don't get anything. And so I'm leaving, I'm out. 
And what are they saying? Well, they're saying they built their marriage off of this. And what the Bible's gonna say is these are all really lousy foundations to build your marriage off of. Christian marriage, the Bible's gonna say, is actually built off of not common interest, not common attraction, not common benefit, but it's built off of a common mission. That it's when you have a husband and wife who are coming together and they are saying, we want to commit to painting a picture together so that we can both display the love of Jesus to each other and we can display the love of Jesus to the world. And so we are on a common mission. And can I just tell you, the truth is, the truth is that if you want real intimacy in your marriage, intimacy comes and flows from mission. Does it not? I mean, think about it, intimacy for the sake of intimacy. Like if the goal is intimacy, that's nonsensical. If you got two people in a room and said, the goal is intimacy, you know, be friends. It's like, you're gonna kill each other. But if the goal is sail on the same mission, intimacy is a byproduct of that. And the Bible's gonna say that the marriage that God designed is to be on a common mission. You know, I was thinking about this whole thing and I, I was really, um, I was really uh, struggling with whether or not I should say this next thing because I just never want to give you the impression uh, that I have it all figured out because I really don't. I, I mean, I really don't. I, I'm, I'm flawed in so many ways. And I'm not just saying that because it's like the humble thing to say. I'm just saying it's because it's true. I don't have everything figured out. But I was thinking about this this past week and I was actually really thanking God uh, because you know my wife Jessica and I, I think we have a really good marriage. I think we do. And uh, I think if you asked her, in fact, I, I know if you asked her, she would say the same thing. And the reason I know that is because I asked her this week. I said, if I got up, I said, if I got up in front of everyone and I said we had a good marriage, would you agree? And she was like, uh, no. And I was like, well, I'll just tell them you do for a point. No, I'm just kidding. Now, I think we both would say, yeah, we actually, we feel like we have, a, we're not, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I think we'd look and say, yeah, we feel like we have a really good marriage. We're really blessed with that. But I think if you pressed either one of us, we would say it's not because we think that we're just incredibly compatible people. We're not, we're so different, we're so different. We run into that all the time. You know, she's um, pleasant to be around, she is kind and considerate, she is uh, nice and neat, and I am none of those things, just none of them. We're just very different people. And we wouldn't say it's because we're smart or we're better, I think quite honestly, we would look and we would say it is one, anything good that we've experienced in our marriage is absolutely attributed to the wisdom of God. It's just God's wisdom. It's because a long time ago when we said I do, we were committing ourselves to a common mission. And we said, you know, we're not gonna do it perfectly, but we believe our Father in heaven that when he says that this is, this is the way that we're to display Christ-like love to each other, we're both committed to pursuing that. And I'm just telling you, we have seen God's wisdom in this. It breaks my heart so much that we live in a society that would look at what the Bible says about marriage and say that that's dumb. Because I don't think our definition is doing very good for us. And yet when you come to scripture, what you see, I believe, is the wisdom of God is within it. And so I just, I think I'll say all this to say that, man, Christians, for those of us who follow Christ, Please hear me on this. Your marriage really, really matters. It does. It matters. It matters a lot to God. Your marriage matters a lot. Look, everybody, everybody in our world sees spouses demanding their own way. Everybody sees that. There's, there's nothing that's gonna stand out if Christians do the same thing, right? Everybody sees husbands neglecting their wives for their careers or for their hobbies. Everybody sees that. There's nothing that's gonna stand out about us husbands if we don't do anything different. 
Wives, everybody sees wives disrespecting and belittling and criticizing their husbands. I mean, everybody sees that, right? There's nothing that's gonna stand out there if that's the case. Boyfriends and girlfriends who follow Jesus, when you decide to, to live together in a relationship and, and not being willing to commit yourself into marriage, everybody sees that. There's just nothing that's gonna stand out about you. So what is it gonna look like for us to be highlighters? Well, I think it means we do something different. We do something different. And so husbands, I think what this means for us is Christian husbands, please hear me with all the grace in my heart. We have to be the best, the best at loving and respecting and practicing servant leadership to our wives. We ought to be the best at that. And Christian wives, I think Christian wives, man, they should be the very best at celebrating and championing and responding and inviting her husband's love and leadership. And why? Because of Jesus' great love for us. Because of Jesus' great love for us. And secondly, because the world is watching. The world is watching. Can we show them something different? Can we show them what the love of Jesus looks like? Can we, look, can we show them what the, self, the self-sacrificing love of Christ would look like on display for the world to see? Not perfectly, but can we show them that? I think God wants to do that. The world is watching. Listen, couples, husbands and wives, your kids are watching. The kids are watching. Like one of the greatest things that you can teach your, your children about the love of Jesus is not what you say with your mouth, but it's what you do with your life. And the best way you can express Christ-like love is through your marriage. They can see that in those ways. So Christians, your marriage matters. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are thinking, well, I hope my spouse is listening. Oh, man, he needed this one. Yeah, you tell him. I'm a daughter of heaven. You tell him that, right? And some of you are like, my, my wife, she needed to hear that. She, the gentle, quiet part. Mm-hmm. She needed to hear that. And uh, so let me just say on this one, I think it's important for me to stress not just what Peter said, but also what Peter doesn't say. So do you notice that when Peter is speaking to wives, do you notice who he addresses? Wives. And when he's speaking to husbands, do you notice who he addresses? Husbands. Why is that important? Here's why. Look up here. If you're, if you're a husband or a wife, look up here for a minute. You cannot demand this of your spouse. You just can't. What, what God says to wives, he says to wives. And what God says to husbands, he says to husbands. And so because of that, it's your job to respond to Christ's like to Christ's love and to live that out in your marriage. And whatever your spouse does is between them and God. You pray for them. You pray for them but we can't demand this as spouses. I know for some of you, you're like, thanks, man. This is gonna be a real quiet ride on the home, on the car today. You know, she's gonna be like, so what do you think of the message? I'm gonna be like, Tony, hate you, All right? Bottom line, and as the band comes up, I think is this, you know, we need grace. We need grace. Husbands and wives, I think you probably feel that. I feel that. We need grace on this, you know? We need God's grace. I'm thankful we have it. We're not gonna get this right every time. We're going to fail at this. And we need grace. And you know, spouses, I think we need grace from each other. I think one of the greatest things that we can do for each other and one of the ways we can show Christ-like love is when our spouses don't get this right, that we're quick to be there and say, all right, and to keep going together. And we need this. The bottom line, though, I think is that, man, I think God, for those of us who are married, I think God wants to do more, th- more f- through our marriages than we might even know for ourselves. 
that God has a bigger, a bigger point and a bigger intention for your marriage than you might think. And my hope is that for some of you, you find that motivating and inspiring and encouraging. But I do know that there's some of you that you hear this whole thing and maybe for you, it just feels defeating and it feels deflating. Because maybe for you, you feel like you're so far from this or maybe for you, you feel like your marriage is in such a tough spot right now that you feel like this is just so far from reality. And can I just tell you that if that's the case, I wanna pray for you. But if I tell you if, that, if that's you and that's the case, you are not unique in that. There are so many marriages that are struggling and are going through challenging things and that's why we need each other. That's why we need each other. That's why it's so important to get connected to Christian community, things like life group, where you can journey through marriage with other people. That's why it's important. Listen, sometimes you gotta get counseling and that's okay. There's no weakness in that. We all need that at some points in our lives to, to say, man, we need help. We need help and that's okay. And maybe for some of you, that's your next step is to say, we need help and to watch God work through that to bring you to the place that he wants you to be. We can highlight God and one of the ways that we do that is through our marriage. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you for um, your word. Lord, honestly, you know, I think this is exciting. This passage is exciting because it reveals that your ways are different than ours. And that's cool because uh, we believe that you're wise. We believe that you're wiser than culture and what wise, wiser than the society we live in. We can see that marriage has not fared well in our society in our desire to turn our backs against what you said, haven't led to great things. And so I pray, Jesus, you'd help us to pay attention to that. You know, sometimes we can read your ways and we can think they sound uh, a little archaic or restraining, but I think when we understand your heart, we see it's beautiful, what you actually intended. So I pray for that, Jesus. I pray for marriages in this room right now that are strained or that are hurting, that are numb, that are broken. Would you breathe fresh life into them, Lord? Would you help us to see that our marriage is not even just about our marriage, but our marriage is about your love and it's about a mission that you wanna accomplish through us. Help us to do that, Lord. We also understand the best thing we can do to become better spouses is to love you more because the more we know you and the more we follow you, the more we're gonna understand your love and then be able to impart that love to our spouse. So I pray that as we worship and sing, God, would you shower us with your grace would you give us a vision for what you want to do? Would you empower us to do it? We pray these things in Jesus' name.